When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code CULTURAL. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Rip Van Winkle in Time edition. It's Wednesday, November 12, 2014 on today's show. Interstellar is the new Big Think blockbuster from Christopher Nolan. It stars Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway. And then follow me on this. The comeback is an HBO reboot of a sitcom about the making of a reality show about the making of a sitcom. I think it also reconciles relativity with quantum theory. Anyway, it stars Lisa Kudrow, and we're joined by none other than Andy Bowers to talk about it. And finally, becoming a London cabbie requires passing an examination that is possibly the most difficult test in the world. Jody Rosen joins us to discuss his, I think, tour de force New York Times article on the test known as The Knowledge. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And, of course, uh, uh, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. <laughs> Glad you could remember my name. <laughs> yeah, Steve, do you need to take a knowledge test of, like, who's on your podcast that you've been doing for six years? <laughs> I was trying to decide whether to crawl back into the Taylor Swift uh, uh, Tesseract for a minute with some lightsome banter, but then I thought maybe you'd fire me. Um, but anyway, moving on. <laughs> It's been nearly 10 years since the in-real-life Lisa Kudrow and the actual factual HBO network teamed up for a sitcom called The Comeback. As Willa Paskin described it, it was a comedy about the making of a reality show about the making of a sitcom. I plagiarized a little bit for my uh, intro to the show. Anyway, in the show, Kudrow plays Valerie Cherish, the ex-star of a defunct network sitcom, who's now making a reality show about her new life as the star of yet another mediocre network sitcom. And it's now a reboot. It's been revived by HBO are we in dilated time or earth time in a wormhole or Ghent, New York? I don't know. I'm a little bit lost. Uh, we're going to bring in the wonderful executive producer of Slate Podcast, Andy Bowers, to walk us through the comeback. But before we do that, let's listen to a clip. Everything's going. Yeah. <laughs> Iron's on the fire, so well, why am I not surprised? Right. We need to see each other. Yeah. Tomorrow? I wish. I'm actually going to Bali to shoot a movie. I'm in love with the robot in this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know. But I'll be back in like three months. Uh, three months? It's a date. Great. Okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, actually, four months. I'm going to ask. I'm, I'm going to Madrid to shoot for Vogue. Oh, okay. Four months. Well, listen, I really got to go. But yeah. I'll see you soon. Okay. 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 Tuna, Bye. This way. Okay. Tuna. Still on my foot. You gotta get off my foot. Oh, okay, that's not nice. Look what your guys did. And you've gotta get off my foot. All right. All right. Well, uh, Julia, this show is quite the meta lasagna, right? It's layers and layers that you can't really quite keep straight. Is it a sitcom, a reality show? I mean, clearly it's a sitcom. But anyway, it's layers and layers of showbiz knowingness. Did you enjoy it? I 
I, well, let's see. I don't think I totally grokked it yet. I had a little bit of a wire we hearness. It was interesting to come into it cold, not really knowing the full history of the first comeback. I've sort of had it on my list of things that I should check out at some point, I guess, for 10 years since it went off the air, because a lot of people whose opinions I esteem think highly of it, but I never got around to it. And then it seemed like, okay, HBO's reviving it. That's interesting. But it strikes me that to do a show that parodies reality television in 20, 2004, sort of at the dawn of the age where reality TV felt like it was vital and interesting and taking over our brains, seems different, seems like a different project than doing that in 2014 in ways that I felt like I was trying to grok as we went along. I mean, the show very explicitly hints at the dawn and rise of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which is a phenomenon that did not exist at the time of the original show. And you see the Valerie Cherish character not cutting it as a housewife. She doesn't get that she's supposed to bring a lot of drink-flinging drama without making reference to the camera and just pretending that her life is one long series of um, Botox lunches full of rage, vengeance, and woe. And instead, she gets like actually hot under the collar and keeps arguing with the cameraman in ways that ruin the shot and make it clear why she didn't survive in the currently booming style of reality TV. But I wasn't totally sure yet where this was going to go. And I also felt for the first 20 minutes of the show that the Valerie Cherish character was so grating that I didn't want to spend any more time with her. And then by the end of the episode, I did find the little kernel of heart underneath her, which is that she's she's just kind of too nice and push aroundable to really make it as a reality show diva. Like she realizes that she should be staging more scenes and getting more indignant when she is not allowed to bring her camera crew into the Chateau Marmont or, you know, she she storms into a meeting with some people she's suing to give them what for. And then she ends up just sort of like meekly auditioning to play herself in a, in a show that's sending up her, <laughs> her sad career. And that was sort of heartwarming and made me think it might be fun to follow her character for a while. But I just I had a little trouble situating what this show has to say about the current television moment. Mm-hmm. Dana, what do you think of it? Well, primarily, I was just sort of dazzled by Lisa Kudrow's performance as Valerie Cherish. I mean, it's a very challenging character to play. She has a task somewhat like the Laura Dern character in Enlightened, the HBO series Enlightened, in that she's thoroughly unlikable in a very different way than Laura Dern's was, um, and yet still somehow manages to win us over and make us at least feel sorry for her, if not sort of root for her. I don't think the show is anywhere near as well-written as Enlightened was, and it feels more improv-based. It feels a little bit to me like the same joke over and over again, but she is so skilled at projecting that level of vanity, uh, self-consciousness, you know, what are the things that make up the Valerie Cherish character? Just a desperate need to be liked and loved and to look good at every moment. And, you know, just that that whole image consciousness that kind of drives a Hollywood star, but combined, you know, with her career failure or sort of the decline of her career over, I assume, since the last season, it's a very touching character. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now let's bring in the Joey Tribbiani chair of the Comeback Studies uh, himself, Andy Bowers. We need a scholar to give us the kind of historical depth and understanding with which to situate this uh, sitcom. Andy, you were a big fan of the show when it first came out. What did you like about it? And how do you compare it to the reboot? Well, first of all, I I did watch it when it first came out. I I kind of liked it. And then I rediscovered it uh, earlier this year with my daughter. We We had binge watched 30 Rock. She loved it. I was looking for something in that vein and we discovered the comeback and we just both absolutely fell in love with it and realized 
how groundbreaking it was and and really deeply funny. But let me say, if if you're starting with the comeback with this new season, it's like starting Arrested Development with the Netflix reboot, <laughs> which is not a good place to start. So you mean you, you're disappointed in the second season, Andy, so far? You know, I've only seen two of them so far. I'm a little bit disappointed. I I can see where it's going. But without knowing the context of the original, I don't see how you could make heads or tails of the new one. So much of what they're referring to is was important stuff from the original. So let me tell you a little bit about the original. It was a very meta show. It was a single camera sitcom about a reality show about a multi camera sitcom. And the multi-camera sitcom is so bad, so aggressively bad, that it's hilarious. It's called Room and Board, spelled B-O-R-E-D. <laughs> and, you know, it just tries to pack as many young girls and boys in bikinis and bathing suits in front of the camera as they can possibly fit. And Valerie Cherish is thrown in the middle of this and humiliated at every turn. And what the show is about is not even, uh, it's not about reality TV. It was using the idiom that was new at the time to tell a story about what it's like for a fading actress in her 40s in Hollywood and the indignities that she has to go through at every step of every process just to stay on camera. She has to, she's given these terrible lines. She's dressed up in these horrible costumes and she has to just grin and bear it. And the brilliance of Kudrow's performance, I thought, was that she, you would see it register on her face for just an instant, this like, oh my God, are they really asking me to do this? And then she would swallow and move on and put on a smile. And you saw what was going on inside, which is this is what I have to do to stay on television. I have no choice. I have no power in this situation. And she's so desperate for power that the only place that she can exercise it is in the rest of her life, which we see because we're seeing the reality footage. That's interesting. Mm. That does put the whole thing in more context. And it does also add a gloss to this show. So that was an aging actress whose hit show was behind her skillfully channeling an aging actress. But then that channeling failed and was canceled after 13 episodes. And then she sort of went darkish for a decade. And now she's back again, sort of because she's the show's become a cult thing that is beloved. But also, you know, Kudrow hasn't been like super busy for the last decade, which adds like Mm -hmm. this whole other gloss on top of it. There's just so many layers of like knowing humor slash pity slash I don't know what. I mean, I think you're right that Kudrow comes out on top, right? Like she comes out as just a very cunning and interesting actress, I think. It's a hugely demanding part. She's on screen every single second. She's also one of the creators and I think co-writes the episodes, a lot of them with Michael Patrick King, who was the Sex and the City guru. And uh, and so there's a huge amount of her being being poured into it. Actually, I think a part of what I like about this story when I think about it is just the fact that any show could come back, a one-season show could come back after nine years and get another season on HBO. It makes me feel like there's hope for all of our orphan shows that we wish would one day come back again. Maybe they'll do like My So-Called Life like the 30-something edition. <laughs> They'll bring back that show. And I guess they're bringing back Twin Peaks, aren't yeah. they? Right. That's they 20 are. years later. Yeah. But that's that's what I feel a little bit about the this new series, at least the two I've seen so far, is it, it just has lost a little bit of steam. And it's not that it's badly written. It's not that the performances aren't good. It's, it's like that Arrested Development experience where 
something about being in the middle of making this thing the original time must have built up a momentum that was lost. And I, in the first two anyway, I haven't felt the, mo- the momentum build back up yet. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, just watching it, I didn't feel I, I didn't feel as though it, it didn't feel as though it had internal momentum. But I, the second question I had about it, which is as remarkable as her performance is, are we? I, I mean, the pathos is generated by this woman being asked over and over again to do undignified things, but she does them, and she does them because she's so grasping and she's so desperate to be alive in front of a camera because presumably some significant part of her is dead is dead off of it you know so she does them and and she accedes to it and that part of her is so profoundly unsympathetic i wonder like can one really continue watching this on a weekly basis do we andy watching that first season through and enjoying it you must have developed uh sympathy like real sympathy for that character yes you you hate her at first um you know she does the namaste hands at every turn and <laughs> She's just cloying in every possible way. And yes, by the end, you do end up both sympathizing with her and, and loving her. The performance is so subtle that you see start to see past all of that and you see something that could be true of any of us trying to stay relevant in our chosen careers when uh, there are new up-and-comers like Malin Ackerman in, in that clip that we heard who are just, you know, blowing past us. And, you know, yes, there's more vanity in the profession she's chosen. But, you know, we all face this at some point in our careers. Right. And it's funny, too, right? Malin Ackerman's sitcom itself just got canceled last year. So she's floating around a little bit, too. She's on her way. In 10 years, she's going to be doing some layered self-mockery. I mean, it does feel like there. (laughs) this is now the mode. Like, one of the things you can do as an aging star is play a a winking version of yourself. The other show that's doing this right now with a former Friends alum is Episodes on Showtime, which stars Matt LeBlanc, a.k.a. Joey Tribbiani, as Matt LeBlanc, who stars as the the, um, lead of a sitcom called Pucks that's written by these British expats who are totally befuddled by the mores of Hollywood and whose show gets, like, stupider and dumber by the moment. And it's a very funny show. I mean, I like it a lot. The tone is different. It's more outsiders go to Hollywood and... Matt LeBlanc is kind of the sidebar goofball character. It's not about his pathos fundamentally, but there's plenty of it. He's, you know, there's like some moppets on the show who have Justin Bieber hair and all the ratings show that that everybody only wants the show to be about the kids. So instead of being a teacher focused show about a hockey coach or whatever the hell it starts as, he becomes this like sidebar character. Anyway, Friends alums doing undignified things on meta sitcoms is now like a whole genre. And it's maybe it's heartening that that there's this out for actors? I don't know. Or maybe it's sad that that's the only thing they can play. But it it calls to mind the word that you've invoked a couple of times talking about huge Hollywood blockbuster movies that kind of make fun of their own status as juggernauts, even as they reap all the benefits of of being uh, gigantic category-killing movies, uh, which is sinister. Isn't there something just... I mean, this is not to impute anything to this particular show, but just the general phenomenon of Hollywood cannibalizing itself has at least a little bit of a cake-and-eat-it-too aspect to it, which is it forgives itself for all of its known excesses and hypocrisies by depicting them. Do we really feel uh, an enormous amount of charity towards this uh, impulse? 
Um, no, because Hollywood is not a monolithic entity. There are a lot of people who come pass through Hollywood and are subjected to this treatment, and it is a brutal business. And I think that um, you know, while the people who give the green light to projects like this are probably trying to get a little absolution by doing it. I think, um, no, I think these are real stories experienced by the people who are eaten up and spit out by this industry. And, well, I live in Hollywood, and many people I know are in the industry, so perhaps I find them more interesting than most people. But um, I love a good Hollywood dark tale. I love the player. I love swimming with sharks, and, and I love the comeback. Andy, that was a terrific answer, and thank you so much for coming on the show. That is a historic first. Yes. Well, thank you for calling me wonderful. Um, your paycheck is in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The show is The Comeback. It stars Lisa Kudrow as something sort of like herself. Check it out and tell us what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? We are delighted to be sponsored this week by Harry's. Harry's is the innovative new shaving company that will send you a super cool razor and blades in the mail. They are dedicated to a higher quality shave and making it cheaper. And Steve, I believe you just subscribed to Harry's, right? Totally independently of, uh, of, of our deal with them. I did. And can you think of why in one word I would do that? Um... Because you strive to achieve smoothness of cheek? That's not one word. Suavity? In, ger- in, in German, striving to achieve smoothness of cheek is one word. And as we know, they purchased the factory in Germany where these blades are made. No, the word, Julia, is my favorite word, a la capale. Because the, the price that we pay for razors, we men, we men of the world, and I would assume you women too, is uh, it cannot be a market price. It's just not possible that that is what, in a perfectly functioning, frictionless, uh, all information fully transparent market of free and rational actors, one would pay for a simple plastic commodity uh, like a razor blade. And it turns out probably isn't because Harry's has done an end around around that delivery system. And thanks to the internet, you can now buy your razors at a market price. And it turns out they're wonderful razors. I am smooth of cheek. Fantastic. No wonder you've been sounding so suave recently. Do they, don't they also send you creams and brushes and all manner of unguents and things? Unguents? I was hoping you were going to say unguents. Well, why don't I jump in and, and tell our listeners a little bit more about their starter set, which is an amazing deal. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. And then you can pony up and get replacement blades thereafter. And why pay 32 bucks for an eight-pack of blades at the drugstore when it is half the price at Harry's. Harry's actually has a special deal for our listeners. Go to harrys.com now and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our coupon code cultural with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and coupon code cultural at checkout for $5 off and start shaving better today. Experience a clean, close, comfortable shave with Harry's. Mm -hmm. And let me jump in here, Julia, very quickly and say that I found out belatedly that we had uh, that we had been sponsored by Harry's in the past when I was on my book leave, something I didn't know when I ordered the service. I got the service completely independent of any um, sponsor deal we had with them, and I'm very happy with it. It's a, it's a completely sincere um, endorsement. Good. Well, yeah. Everybody out there, get smooth. All right. What's next? All right, Julia. Moving on. 
In Christopher Nolan's new movie, Interstellar, planet Earth is, thanks to some ecological collapse, a rapidly depopulating dust bowl. Humanity must search the heavens to find a new habitat. This requires a new solar system, and this requires passing through, I think, a wormhole, a tesseract, you tell me. Interstellar is an old-fashioned space opera and would-be blockbuster, but it's also intended as a meditation on relativity, physics, time, gravity, and finally, parental love. Hey, Dana, will you uh, do me a solid here and uh, set up the clip for me? Yeah, so I think the, the scene that we're going to listen to comes from the first 20 minutes that you were talking about that's sort of setting up the uh, the future dystopia on Earth and the family relationship. So in this scene, Matthew McConaughey goes in for a teacher-parent conference at his daughter's school and learns that his daughter, who, like him, is a, is a fierce uh, science nerd and, and a, a believer in space travel, beats up another kid at her school because that kid claims that the moon landing was faked. And then we learn that apparently that is actually the official ideology of the United States in this dystopic future, that the moon landing was fake and space travel is all a sham. Murph is a great kid. She's really bright. But she's been having a little trouble lately. She brought this in to show the other students the section on the lunar landings. Yeah, that's one of my old textbooks. She always loved the pictures. It's an old federal textbook. We've replaced them with the corrected versions. Corrected. Explaining how the Apollo missions were fake to bankrupt the Soviet Union. You don't believe we went to the moon? I believe it was a brilliant piece of propaganda that the Soviets bankrupted themselves, pouring resources into rockets and other useless machines. Useless machines? And if we don't want a repeat of the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, then we need to teach our kids about this planet, not tales of leaving it. You know, one of those useless machines they used to make was called an MRI. And if we had any of those left, the doctors would have been able to find the cyst in my wife's brain before she died instead of afterwards. And then she'd have been the one sitting there listening to this instead of me, which had been a good thing because she was always the, the calmer one. Dane, I'm really curious to know what you thought about the movie. I'm also curious to know how you feel now that this Nolan you know, body of work is growing quite substantial. What do you think of Interstellar? I mean, as someone who in the past has not necessarily been the biggest Christopher Nolan fan, he's he's one of those directors who has a voice, but it's not necessarily one that resonates with me. I don't dispute that he has all kinds of original visions, and this is actually one of his more original movies of late. But I've never quite been able to get around the, what would you call it, just the somber ponderousness of, of Christopher Nolan's world. Um, I think Memento is probably my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. His second film, the one that's a, the strange kind of memory loop story starring Guy Pearce, just because that's one of the most playful. And Christopher Nolan, as he's gotten bigger and bigger budgets and you know more and more sort of giant global releases, I think has gotten less interesting. And so given all of that background about my Christopher Nolan hesitations, I actually sort of liked Interstellar. I think it's my favorite Nolan movie in some time. At least it's not a comic book adaptation. It's an original piece of material. And it has a vision. The vision is kind of hokey and corny and a little bit crazy. And the movie is incredibly long and arguably kind of overstuffed and overambitious. But it's pretty entertaining to watch it unroll. I feel like David Edelstein in, in New York Magazine really nailed it when he said, this movie filled me with awe. A lot of the time, it was awe about how stupid what was happening on screen was, but it was awe nonetheless. Well, it sounds like you loved it. Julia, what do you think? I also, again, had sort of an expectations game joy response, which was, I feel very similarly to you about Christopher Nolan, that I always think his movies are entertaining to look at, but I'm not like, can't wait for the next Chris Nolan joint. You know, like they don't totally speak to me because they don't because of their lack of lightness of touch um, and all and economy and the things that I tend to most admire in a work of art. But 
This one, I, yeah. I mean, I definitely think that the sort of original visions are more fun than the Batman movies. Like, if he's going to do ponderous glower, I'd rather have it around his own weird ideas about the world. But Inception, to me, was like this fascinating puzzle game that was a brilliant ride, but ended up being about nothing. And this one tried to be about these, like, very sweet, majestic, hokey but important ideas about like love across generations in a failing society that are actually significant. I don't think it had anything super interesting to say about those things, but um, the performances are good. The visions of the world are fascinating. One thing that was surprising about it actually is that even though it's an original movie, it suffers from feeling less original because there have been a bunch of other similar movies recently. Like it yeah. sort of feels like gravity, but the orbit is like much further mm-hmm. out. It's yeah. like a person bound by complicated feelings about parenthood is stuck in space and can they return? And then also it kind of felt similar to Prometheus, the yeah. um, the alien prequel where they're exploring new planets and and contemplating mysteries of human life and deep sleep and, you know, missing Michael Fassbender as the friendly robot and replacing him with a, like a funny loping puppy, actual machine robot type (laughs) thing. But yeah, so it didn't feel like it should feel original because it felt like I've seen a bunch of these space jams recently. And yet I was charmed. I think where it gets original is the stuff that we can't really spoil. Like there's some crazy, crazy stuff that happens in the last third when some of these questions about, you know, gravity and relativity and the relative passage of time in different parts of the universe are all brought together in this really nutty scene. Uh, Right. That's obvious. I think you're right, Dana. That's the kind of crux of the movie. It's in some ways what I liked least about it. We don't want to spoil it at all. So let me go back to the first thing that I really genuinely loved about the movie which was the first 20 minutes of it plunks you down in a very unsci-fi world so you're in the process of the earth collapsing and its ability to sustain life happening but it's also become normalized that this is the process the world is going through so it gives you a sense that you know it, it really will end with a whimper not a bang and that habituates you to the characters and the relationships, the central relationship, which is the father-daughter relationship between McConaughey and his, his, at the time the movie opens, quite young daughter, also to a degree his son. And these things do form you know, the m- emotional heart of the movie. So he is trying to build, and in total good faith, is trying to build a very large vision blockbuster around nuclear family, you know, highly intimate nuclear family relationships. I really liked that. You're also very generous I, to count that as 20 minutes of the movie. I think that was like an hour of the movie. Well, I also okay. I mean, that part. But, but space time passes differently when you walk into <laughs> a Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> exactly. I felt the movie became somewhat generic in the middle uh, relative, especially to Gravity and Prometheus. It made it feel somewhat familiar. And I, I do feel as though I like the fact that highly distinctive directors, Nolan in particular, whose career began with Memento, which, Memento, which is a at the time, a fairly small, I believe, independently produced film. I like the fact that very distinctive directors are being brought in to deal with or create from nothing, you know, very large block, you know, blockbuster style films in order to give them uh, character. The burden of, I, I felt the burden of that throughout the movie, that he wanted to make a statement as large as the budget. And to that end, I wasn't sure that he was always totally original. I pick up bits and pieces of Ghost, you know, everything from uh, the old Demi Moore film Ghost to Ian McEwan's Atonement to obviously 2001, to which it's something of an homage, so maybe it gets a pass there. But there were a couple of others, too, that struck me as really, really obvious. Um, 
the M. Night Shyamalan movie Signs. I was going to say <laughs> Signs. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's amazing. And so in that sense, the, the this unrelenting attempt to say something new and say it in a wholly new way was a little exhausting, though I felt there was there was payoff in the last 10, 15 minutes. Oh, see, I, to me, the last, we can't get into this without major spoiling, but I felt like the way some of those family relationships get ra- wrapped up in the last 20 minutes were, was laughable almost in its, in its emotional undeafness. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I agree with you, Steve, that the idea of setting this up around the core of essentially this father-daughter relationship or two father-daughter relationships, the one between Michael Caine, who plays um, Anne Hathaway's father, and Matthew McConaughey, who plays this young girl's father who will she will grow up to be Jessica Chastain those were very well set up but the way that all that stuff gets resolved in the last 20 minutes felt to me like first of all the movie had about five endings you kept thinking Mm. when is this thing finally going to be over and then we really can't get into the kind of emotional wrongness of the the final father-daughter encounter without spoiling a lot of stuff but I just felt like the idea that they were people who had been separated and loved each other and were finding each other again and that that was their interaction you guys know the interaction Mm -hmm. I'm talking about was was kind of crazy yeah, no, that was the atonement moment for me. I mean, it definitely, it just, it sags under the weight of more is more. And and truthfully, sometimes less is more. I mean, for as long as 2001 was, remember those were awing special effects back then. No one had any seen, no one had seen anything quite like them. And uh, and then the amount that goes unsaid in 2001, I bet you could write that script out in under 40 pages. This is not a movie, Julia, in which things go unsaid. Quite a lot goes said, and some of it is quite literal. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe we're just grading a little bit on a curve. Like, it's heartening when interesting-ish director does something original instead of just giving, like, us more robot movies. But I'm okay with that. I'm I'm glad this movie exists. I'm glad people seem to like it. I, of all the directors to give that free reign to, Nolan isn't the one that I'm most excited about seeing what he does with it. But I sort of enjoyed the, like interstellar family hokum of this film. In a crazy way, I wish that it had been a a TV show because it was almost as long as it was and as exhausting as it was to sit through, it almost felt rushed, especially at the end, this part that I'm talking about. There were five endings and so you wanted it at the end, but at the same time, every individual ending was sort of unsatisfying in its wrap-up. So I sort of found myself wishing that Nolan would apply himself to a longer form and try to unfold some of his ideas at at greater length. True Detective Season 2, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that should be Nolan's next jam. <laughs> uh, Julia, I don't want to forget to plug Phil Plate's um, blog posts about the science of the movie, which seemed to me the definitive take on that, though he did have to post something of a retraction to his first one. Nonetheless, they are incredibly illuminating about the supposed science behind the uh, screenplay. Yeah, which they, which the people who made this movie took quite seriously, it sounds like. I mean, as a viewer, it's hard to take it seriously, but it sounds like there is some some scientific meat to chew on. It's right. Well, the, the theoretical physicist Kip Thorne, who's one of Stephen Hawking's big contemporaries, was an advisor and I think maybe a producer on the movie. So there was a lot of talk about relativity and black holes and how it was all going to look. And of course, it's speculative science, but the movie is trying to be pretty sciencey. All right. Well, the movie is Interstellar. It's a Christopher Nolan joint, as uh, Julia said. It uh, stars Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway. There's a surprise cameo in the middle of it that we've been uh, exhorted to keep secret. It's a nice surprise. Uh, go check it out. Tell us what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. Jody Rosen is the critic at large for T, the New York Times style magazine. His new piece is called The Knowledge, London's Legendary Taxi Driver Test, puts up a fight in the age of GPS, and I think it can be fairly described as a tour de force. It is an amazing piece of nonfiction 
writing, let me begin by quoting from it, the six-mile radius from Charing Cross, the putative center point of London, marked by an equestrian statue of King Charles I, takes in some 25,000 streets. London cabbies need to know all of those streets and how to drive them, the direction they run, which are dead ends, where to enter and exit traffic circles, and so on. But cabbies also need to know everything on the streets. Examiners may ask a would-be cabbie to identify the location of any restaurant in London, any pub, any shop, any landmark, no matter how small or obscure. All are fair game. Test takers have been asked to name the whereabouts of flower stands, of laundromats, of commemorative plaques. Jody, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. Uh, Jody, I've been hearing you uh, describe this piece or this perspective piece for years. It's always struck me as a wonderful fancy that I, I really hoped one day you would undertake, and now you have. It's uh, everything I hoped it would be and more. It is really congratulations on a on a truly superlative piece of writing. Thanks. I, it, was, it, was, it was. I feel a like great burden has been lifted from my soul and pen or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's been it's been a while in the making. Oh, may one day uh, I know what that feels like. Let's <laughs> let's uh, let's dig in. What got you interested in this, and how did you even begin reporting it? So I lived in London for several years, for a few years in the in the nineteen nineties, and I've always loved London. I mean, I'm a, kind of a New Yorker through and through, but London is sort of my second city, and London is the city. It's this place that's still, with apologies to Paris, that still is, I'd say, you know, a vital cultural epicenter. So much goes on there hugely you know it's a it's a it's a almost a mega city you might say and and yet it has this deep deep history unlike here in new york you know obviously we have there's a long history here but it's we don't have thousands of years of quote unquote civilization here um you know it wasn't this place hasn't existed as a city for for thousands of years in the same way that london has and there's just so much there and so over the years, London is, you know, its history has fascinated me. I've read a lot about it. And um, as soon as I be- moved there in the 90s, I became aware of the fact that the taxi drivers there had this reputation as being the best in the world. And I knew vaguely that they took this very arduous examination to become taxi drivers. But I didn't realize until I looked into it a bit exactly what it entailed. And it's a funny thing because in, in England, everyone knows oh, yeah, London taxi drivers, they take the knowledge. It's a hard test. They have to know the roads. But most people even there, it's sort of hidden in plain sight. They really don't know what it entails, the crazy difficulty of the exam Mm -hmm. and what its demands are. And so that's something that I began probing by just talking to taxi drivers and knowledge boys as I'd see them around town when I was living in London and then on subsequent visits there. And then sometime about 10 years ago, I decided I got to write a big piece on this. For a while, I thought I wanted to write a book. So I began hanging around at so-called knowledge schools, the places where these guys congregate to practice for the test, and um, sort of embedding with, with knowledge boys, as they're called, as they, as they went out going on runs, looking at various parts of the city and trying to memorize routes. Mm-hmm. Jody, before we get to the who, let's start with the what a little bit. It's the history of London that makes it so hard to understand as a streetscape that, uh, as you point out in the piece, you tell this fascinating history about how many modern cities, Paris included, were remade in the 19th century along a, a wide boulevard system, or Manhattan, of course, was always on a grid system. But London never went through that transformation. So what they're learning is itself so involute and so strange and so kind of impossible to memorize on any kind of pre-existing mnemonic pattern that it takes a remarkable cognitive leap really to do. 
Yeah, the th- the thing about London is that it's a labyrinth, right? It's this this huge morass of little villages that grew together into one big city. So as you say, there was never a Baron Houseman as in Paris, who kind of obliterated the medieval city and made big boulevards that linked everything up. Instead, what you have are these tiny rabbit warren streets that have all grown together into one big Byzantine mess. And so, you know, Londoners will tell you they don't know their way around London. Londoners know their kind of little areas. Like all of us, they have their own little mental maps of the of the path that they take through their day. But to really know the whole city is a nearly impossible feat. And at some point, the city of London itself recognized this. The, according to lore, although there's no confirmation of this, the occasion was the 1851 Great Exhibition when so many visitors came to London and complained uh, the story goes about the hackney cabmen who didn't know their way around, so the city decided to institute a more rigorous um, examination process. And, and so that was in the horse and carriage days. That was the in the horse began exactly. And um, in any case, what has evolved is this kind of system of training and memorization, which is this. Very, it's just this incredibly curious, bizarre institution where a municipality, a city, a government asks a group of working class guys to undertake a intellectual endeavor, a kind of course of study over many years that's part kind of, uh, you could say, book learning and, and, and largely expedition, a kind of feat of urban exploration. Yeah, I mean, I think what's fascinating about your piece is that it makes clear that this project of acquiring the knowledge is fundamentally quixotic. It's like really difficult and almost crazy, like living in a big bustling metropolis like New York. There's a lot of ways you can rely on the grid. You know, I don't really know how the Upper West Side works. I spend very little time there, but I get the contours and I have a couple of landmarks. And if you told me to get to some corner of it, I'd have a pretty good idea of how to do it without consulting one of the many devices I can now consult. But in a city like London that's sort of labyrinthine, it's much harder to do. I actually read about this when I did my piece on London and its pedestrian wayfinding initiatives. I mean, they've been London is very aware of how difficult it is to comprehend, uh, and and they've taken several interesting municipal steps to address it. But you do mention in the piece that we are perhaps arriving at a moment where these skills are less useful than they might have been. I mean, the the advent of GPS, um, the advent of Uber, the advent of like a computer program that can just tell you how to get from point A to point B makes this task of acquiring the knowledge seem not only extremely difficult but also maybe not fundamentally necessary anymore and also maybe not even a great economic investment because the city, in addition to having its black cabs that charge you know, internationally renowned for exorbitant rates, um, has a different system where the licensing is much easier and the cabs are cheaper. You can't hail them on the street, but they'll get you from point A to point B. There's been the advent of Uber and all the ancillary protests and regulatory fights, and I'm not sure if those are totally resolved yet. But can you make a case that the knowledge should continue as a municipal good, or are you more interested in it as a sort of fascinating human undertaking that may be endangered? Um, well, you know, I— It's a binary. I, Give me the A-B. 
I, I would like to make both cases. You know, I mean, I it's it's hard for me. I'm so close to this, and I I really I mean, I have such passion for the knowledge as I think it's. It, I, I honestly think it's a beautiful thing. So it's hard for me to say, oh yeah, let let it go the way of all of all things. Look, a ca- like the cabbies themselves will tell you their argument is sat nav, as they call it, GPS doesn't work as well as a London cabbie because of peculiarities of the of the city itself and the way cities work and the way London works in particular. Cities are so dense and dynamic. There's always new road works and streets are closing. All these things happen and a taxi driver will be aware that there's a construction site that just went up in the street down here so they won't take you on that route whereas they, they argue GPS might not know that. Also, they say as GPS is currently configured, you know, you sort of have to enter an address. So if the, your cabbie doesn't know where you're going, he's taking time to do that. And if he picks you up in Piccadilly Circus where he immediately has to make a decision of one of eight streets that he's going to take in order to get you the hell out of there, it's an unworkable system. Of course, what you could say is that the, the pace of technological refinement is such that very sh- soon we will have, um, you know, an algorithm for a GPS, which, you know, you'll have a vo- voice-activated GPS. We may even have a, a, a driverless Google car. And so in that sense, technology looks like it will soon trump or at least equal the knowledge. There's a couple things that I'd say about that. First of all, I'd say the knowledge is not just knowing the way around. It's not even just knowing what traffic is. The knowledge is knowing that London, its history, its folklore. And there are ways, I mean, there, that, that you can talk about that in sort of romantic terms, and I'm very happy to make the romantic sentimental argument for the knowledge. In fact, that's sort of the argument that I make in the piece. Uh, and, you know, an argument for the for erudition, human knowledge over the outsourcing of all our knowledge to technology and handheld devices. But you could also say, for instance, the cabbies know where all the stage doors are at theaters. Actors like to be dropped off the stage door. Okay, the cabbies know that. The cabbies will give you a tour. They're often asked to give tours to tourists. So they will take you around the city in your cab, in, in their cab, and say, hey, that statue there was built in the 18th century. It's this and this and that. So they're doing, they're doing more than simply driving the streets correctly and efficiently. They're kind of the, the municipal Virgils, I guess you'd say, <laughs> you know, leading their uh, people not only from not, getting, not only getting people where they need to go, but also you know, there are founts of information and lore. And that is something that will never be replaced. And there, I think there's, you, can, you can put a value on that because there's a reason people like to take black cabs because it's, it's an incredible service. And, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and the, the kind of uniqueness of the trade and the institution comes through when you're in the back of a black cab talking to a London cabbie. Well, I guess the, the questions that I had to ask about this piece, which I really, really hope everyone listening will read because it's really special, I think. It's just such a scrupulously researched and wonderfully told story. But I guess I'm going to take it, I guess this is back into the romanticization zone. I'm just, I'm really fascinated by the, uh, the vision of pedagogy in this piece and just what a wonderful kind of educational system has been set up for the knowledge for, as you point out, a lot of people who don't have higher education, right? This is a good job to be a black cab driver in London. And a lot of people are really trying to upgrade their lives, you know, and really putting aside years. I don't think we've talked much about the duration of some of these study sessions. I mean, you can go back and keep taking the knowledge over and over again. It's like the bar in that way, right? But and you didn't talk much about the attrition rate either. I'd be interested to see how many people study and then never do pass. But Matt McCabe, this guy who you sort of make your main character and you follow him around on some of his pointing runs or he's practicing learning London, um, had 40,000 flashcards. I mean, just to give an idea of the scale of the stuff he's learning, he had, is that right, 40,000 flashcards with different 
sites in London that he was trying to to memorize and wayfind to. And just some of the examples of the level of detail that these examiners, also wonderful characters in the story, these examiners who are sitting down face to face and they can ask anything they want about the city of London and it has to be answered. One of the details you give that I love is that there's an architectural detail in some building that's a little sculpture of two mice sharing a piece of cheese. And that was the question asked, where can you find this little sculpture of mice nibbling on cheese? Yeah, so Matt, so Matt McCabe, he made up 40,000 flashcards of, as you say, these points. And a point can be anything. A point can be, uh, as I say, a pub, a statue, a restaurant, a sports stadium, a- anything. Um, he made up 40,000 flashcards as he went around doing this. Um, what, a, what people do, I mean, the greatest part of your time when you're studying for the knowledge is spent doing two things. One is going out, generally speaking, almost always, most people do it this way, on a moped, which you either rent or own, and circumnavigate the city, riding the streets endlessly for years, trying to commit it to memory. And that's not just remembering the way the map looks, but it's remembering the way the streets look as they roll out in front of you. So you sort of have to, knowledge boys say that you have a, a kind of double view, right? There's the you have to be able to pull back and look at the bird's eye view of the map, and then also see all the roads in front of you. In some of my time spent reporting this, I was asked by various people I was with to call over runs. And I can tell you that it's, it's amazing because you can, after you do a little pointing around, you can remember the streets. Okay? And you can remember, oh yeah, I remember what that street looked like. I remember that mailbox that was there at the corner when you make the turn. You say, oh yeah, left, left turn on, on Queensway or whatever. So there's that. The other part of your time, a large part of your time is spent doing something called calling over. And that's generally people do that in these knowledge schools, which are basically just places, clubhouses to go sit and sit in front of a map with a partner. And a partner will say, take me from the Sun and Doves pub to the Natural History Museum. And you then, in a kind of specialized jargon, have to call the route, naming every street as you go. Leave on the left such and such street. Take a right turn on this street. Take a left turn on this street without dropping a point, calling all the correct streets on the way. And when people get very good at this, when they do it very quickly, their knowledge boys call them whooshers. And they really mm-hmm. sound like they really sound like rappers. They're really just they're, it's amazing how quickly um, they can kind of flow through the streets, you know, sort of speaking it as they as as in their mind's eye, they're traveling across London. Well, it makes you sort of think that instead of college, we should all just do a wayfinding test of this level of difficulty in our own city, right? I mean, yeah. think of the amount of, of English and history and New York history you would learn oh if you just God, had to do yes. it for your own city. No, I, I had that fantasy. I mean, that my, my two primary responses to your piece were, one, sort of a mournfulness about the fact that this just seems completely impractical. And no matter how you, John Henry... The, the war between, you know, the, the battle between the, the best knowledge boy and the sat-nav. I mean, Slate's running the series right now about the seven wonders of the modern world. And, you know, we can think of the responsive, dynamic, GPS-enabled map as like the big evil steam-powered shovel coming to, you know, beat out this wonderful tradition. On the other hand, it's also a miracle of human ingenuity and wonder, like to, you know, the, the way, like actually this point about road construction, it's not really practical to think that a cabbie is going to be able to keep track of every new construction site in London as efficiently as a crowdsourced map will pretty soon, if not now, right? So I had this sort of mournfulness of thinking that this is a wonderful tradition that, that I just don't, I don't think is a forever thing. I don't think it can be. And then just completely wanting to do this for New York. And I actually, my son's middle name, 
one of my son's middle names is the street, is the street that we lived on, Baxter. And before we decided that as his middle name, we were like, we got to figure out why this street is called Baxter Street. It, it was this set of streets in Little Italy that used to be um, that used to be tree names. So it, it used to be, I think, Orange Street, and then it switched to Baxter at some point because we have some old maps around that we've been looking at. And so we tried to figure out who Baxter was just to make sure we weren't naming him after some like, you know, homicidal maniac. And it turned <laughs> out that he was like a state legislature for New York who like fought in the Mexican War and died. Um, and we were like, eh, we could live with that. You like the name Baxter, we'll go <laughs> for it. But it just, you know, thinking of that example is like, right, to know that, to know that for every street in all of the boroughs of New York, what an incredible thing that would be. And you would, it just feels like you'd be superhuman, you know, and in this way that is marvelous. I have one hope for how the knowledge might survive, though. I mean, if these guys were w- and women who do the knowledge were willing to learn even more and all access to that level of, is it the blue badge you talked about? The next level after you get the green badge of the knowledge is that you have the blue badge of being kind of like a docent of the city of London? Uh, some people choose. Yeah, knowledge boards will tell you that many of them, as I say in the piece, did not never had a higher education. Many of them, you know, finished high school and just went into some sort of trade. Others didn't even finish high school. So, um, and many of them report anecdotally that during the knowledge, they sort of, they, they, they feel suddenly they're, they're, like their minds are on fire. And after they finish learning the roads, they feel this great sort of like void and this need to put more information into their brain because they've been doing that. So an inordinate number of knowledge boys and girls, I should say, because women do do this um, in increasing numbers, decide to become tour guides. That is, they they decide to learn the history while still Formally, driving the black cab. While still driving the black cab. See, that's how I think it could it could have an added value that people would do when they came to London. It might be really expensive. It might be only for tourists. But at least there would still be a place for this repository of human knowledge. Mm. Well, Jody, I'm so glad that you've joined me in the cause of romantic anachronism against uh, <laughs> crushing uh, uh, forces of progress. I knew we'd uh, get back to Taylor Swift somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was going to start with Julia Turner and then work my way through uh, to Taylor Swift, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention probably my favorite paragraph among many, many, many uh, competing for the uh, title, which is the one about how uh, th- that, there's an, that these streets embody a notion of uh, time. I just have to quote from it. Uh, London's labyrinthine roadways are a symbol and perhaps even a cause of the fatalism that hangs like a pea soup fog over the Londoner's consciousness. Facing the dizzying infinitude of streets, your mind turns darkly to thoughts of finitude, to the time that is flying, the minutes you are running late for your doctor's appointment, the hours ticking by never to be retrieved. On the proverbial big clock, the one bigger even than Big Ben, you can see it every day in Primrose Hill and Clapham and uh, Golders Green and Kentish Town in Deptford and Dalston, I'm probably mispronouncing those, a nervous man, an anxious woman scanning the horizon for a recognizable landmark, searching for a street sign, silently wondering, where am I? A geographical question that grades gloomily into an existential one. What a great piece, Jody. It's so, it's so great to have you back on the show to talk about it. Thank you, Steve. It was nice to hear you reading my words, my poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jody, we're not rid of you yet, though. Can you stick around and endorse? I would love to. Only if you endorse Taylor Swift. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So, Dana, what do you got? 
My endorsement this week may be scooping Jody on his endorsement. It's actually something that we experienced together last week. I'm endorsing the new season, or I guess you just call it the new batch of episodes of, of High Maintenance, the web series that you guys talked about last year when I was not here to discuss it, and which I subsequently watched all of in one chunk and loved so much that I went and begged my editor, can I please write on High Maintenance, even though it's not really a movie movie, it's a web series. So High Maintenance is this multi-part web series about the adventures of a weed dealer in New York who's played by Ben Sinclair, who's also one of the co-writers and co creators of the the show with his wife, Katja Blitchfeld. And it is just really one of the best works of art I encountered this year in any medium. I think it may end up on my top 10 list of the year, sort of fudging the boundaries of, you know, what what is cinema and what's not. But these two are just so artful at what they do. The show is so beautifully written and edited and just put together in such a, a clever way. And it's they're all very short episodes of differing lengths, something like 5 to 12 minutes or so. So you can very quickly go online. It's on Vimeo under the title High Maintenance and watch, I think they released three new episodes. That's how many they showed us anyway. That's right. And they were fabulous. Yeah, the one thing I would say is about the length is that like watching that you just realize how I mean the the, the economy in of their of their storytelling in other words how much information is conveyed so quickly through a few shots a whole a whole world a whole character is just sketched so beautifully and so briskly it just makes you feel like everybody else is just fucking around like how why can't everybody else just get it done that quickly and so well you know what I mean do we really need a two hour movie it's true there's so much narrative compression it's really really elegantly done and so I just encourage you if you heard about this and you thought "Uh, I've seen enough stoner comedies or I don't like web series or whatever reason that you're not seeing high maintenance just chuck that reason and watch it noted sounds fantastic noted my Um, reason is just lack of time but I'm going to bump it up the list Okay, well, what have you had time for that you endorse? Oh, well, this is an oldie but goodie, but I just had a fun moment. I mean, one of the fun things about having young children is you get to, like, program their little music brains. Uh, we put on the the Billie Holiday recording of Am I Blue a couple weekends ago, and it just really caught one of my son's fancies, and he started this, like, little soulful diaper butt sway to it, and <laughs> it's just, it's just, a, I mean, it's a beautiful song in many different iterations, and to praise the singing of Billie Holiday is to be like, wow, isn't it nice that we can, like, see colors in the world? I mean, it, there's nothing novel there, but um, put, put that track on if you haven't in a while, whatever your butt is clad in. This does nothing to buy your way back into my affections after <laughs> last week. <laughs> Julia Turner, by the way. Look, uh, you should be trying to scratch back into my who, who affections. Go, who, who ghost wrote that for you, by the way? I love, I love their number. Um, Jody. Oh, my God, Steve. <laughs> Jody, what do you have? Well, there's this Taylor Swift song called Blank Space. And it, no. <laughs> no, I'm actually going to... Um, I, I brought my today is my my son doesn't have school so I brought my son my my older son my ten year old boy Sasha along with me today and uh, he's on the other side of the glass and uh, hey Sasha but um, Sasha is uh, is a great writer and reader and history buff and I think I've actually on various appearances endorsed things that I've that I've learned about through Sasha one of the great things about having a kid I think you'll all agree is like you just get exposed to so much shit through your kid you know what I mean I I really have learned so much. Not just thanks to Sasha, but because of Sasha. And he's, I feel like he's teaching me as much as I am him, except when it comes to things like table manners, Sasha. <laughs> okay? Um, but anyway, so, so for the last couple of years, Sasha's been really, really interested in Native American culture and history. And this was a, this was a topic that I took zero interest in prior to Sasha's interest. I just was like a big void in my 
cultural literacy and in like almost like you might even say in like my moral life, right? Because I just never thought about it. Anyway, so Sasha and I read a lot of books together and we listen to audiobooks when we take long car trips. And we started listening at Sasha's urging to the D. Brown book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, mm. a couple years ago. And this book is, you know, it is just, it's like Silent Spring or something like that. I think it's been compared to that. It's one of these, you know, American classics of the mid-century, I guess it was written in 1970, that just knocked people's socks off because it just told a story that just wasn't told before. It's the story of the American West from the perspective of the Native peoples. And it's it's not the most beautifully written book. It's very it's very good writing, but it's sort of workmanlike. But it is just an incredible feat documentary feat. It's a relentless litany of how the Navajo and the Nez Perce and the Apache and people were duped and obliterated by the American government. How treaty after treaty was broken, how massacre after massacre occurred. It's an incredibly harrowing read, but it's 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 just a, an, a, it's an amazing feat of of truth telling. And it's and it's quite something to to read, listen to, however you're going to experience the book, you, you will come away with a completely different view of our history. And I have to say, when last, last year or this, this past year when Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote that great article about reparations, it struck me. And this was after I'd learned so much Native American history through Sasha. I was just like, where is the dialogue about repar- We're all living on stolen land here. And we're talking about reparations for, Af- for you know, African-Americans and slavery, which is obviously this huge, the, the great, some would say, moral, you know, question at the center of American life. But what about the, the genocide of the Americans? What about not, the other one? What about the other one? And it's not yeah. just about the Washington Redskins and what their, you know, their team name is going to be. So anyway, bury my heart at Wounded Knee, D. Brown. Uh, I've always wanted to read that book, and now I will absolutely make a point of doing it. Uh, so my endorsement is... Uh, it, it, uh, how to come at it. I have thought a lot about what people, I think, rightly remember as the psychic collapse, the sort of national psychic collapse of, that happened to us in the 1970s, which was captured by a number of different books, The White Album by Joan Didion, but also uh, Christopher Lash's Culture of Narcissism. Narcissism has gone general as a pop sociological construct in a way that probably doesn't do justice to Lash's argument, which was intricate and quite powerful. Uh, having thought long and hard about the legacy of Christopher Lash and narcissism in America in the 1970s, I was very surprised to read in The Baffler online an article about all of these subjects that made me think about it in a completely new and fresh way uh, by a journalist named Susie Hansen. It's called America's Long Holiday When Narcissism Attacks. And it's kind of a backlash against the backlash against narcissism. It's beautifully argued. It is a tremendous piece of think journalism. And I was profoundly grateful uh, I had read it. So anyway, it's called America's Long Holiday When Narcissism Attacks by Susie Hansen. It's in The Baffler, and you can find it at thebaffler.com. Check it out. All right. Well, thank you uh, so much, Jody, again, for coming on the show. Thanks a million for having me, really. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. That was grudging. Wow. It was. It was. Uh, No, thanks, Julia. That was fun. I guess so. (laughs) 
All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Meyer. And of course, the executive producer and wonderful guest this week of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, Jody Rosen, and Andy Bowers, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.